Welcome to the Chapman CG podcast series, inspiring and informative conversations with top HR leaders from around the world. We're here to talk about viral cultural change within an organization and the role that leaders have to play. We all know that a positive company culture is imperative to the ongoing success of a company. In particular, leaders have an important role in demonstrating the behaviours that fit with the future direction of the organisation. I'm here today with Gina Wilson, the Europe, Middle East, India and Africa Organisational Development Leader from Ernst & Young. Hi, and a very warm welcome to you, Gina. Thanks ever so much for joining me today. Thanks for the opportunity, Abby. It's great to be here and uh, engaging with Chapman CG. Excellent. Okay, um, please tell us a little bit about your role and the work you do at Ernst & Young. Sure, happy to. And maybe, that, maybe that's the starting point, as many people will know us as the legacy Ernst & Young. We rebranded ourselves to EY probably about four or five years ago now, and, and that's really taken us in a different direction and a different trajectory. As you mentioned, I'm the Europe, Middle East, India, Africa Head of Organizational Development, this gives me a mandate across about 100 countries in 10 clusters, which we call regions. And, yeah, I've been with EY one month shy of about 10 years now in three different roles in three different countries, which really has kind of given my career a very good and unusual flavor. I'm a psychologist by background, which certainly helps me to add an extra dimension of insight to my role. And simply put, my job is to lead large-scale transformational change projects that really influence how our employees are motivated by and affiliate with our organization. And I have a responsibility for getting these up and running uh, and getting them into a really strong position in order to be able to be driven by and owned by the business. Fantastic, Gina. Excellent. And in your view, what makes for a successful company culture? Good question. Um, and I think, you know, every company will be trying to drive a different set of behaviors and values uh, within their organization. I adopt a, a kind of four-prong approach, if you will, to what for me is about a successful company culture. The first piece is around what I name the courage to try. So really encouraging a growth mindset that's about trying new things. So often we see that there is a scarcity mindset in organizations today where people come from a place of fear and it creates a huge resistance to evolving and growing as an organization. The second is what I call the pay it forward principle. So recognizing that nobody can succeed on their own and that no corporate culture is really the result of one particular individual's action. Continuing to pay forward the positive behaviors experienced in the workplace is, is really about helping us to maintain a positive environment for change. The third aspect for me is, is really about what we call active citizenry behavior by all. The notion from a psychological principle is that the sum, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts ultimately. And so each person can be a change agent. They can be a supporter of the good, a challenger of the bad every day, consistently in every interaction. And if we get that right, then the culture is really owned and driven by every single person's individual behavior. And then the final piece is around mindful leadership. 
uh, very often our leaders are uh, distracted, they have multiple responsibilities, and so showing up present every day with that openness to listen and, and engage and to be surprised with, by what they encounter each day for me is, is really crucial. So those are probably the four principles, Abby, that, that I look at no matter what the behaviours are that are trying to be driven by a particular company or organisation. Understood, Gina. That's a, that's a great synopsis. Thank you. And in your view, what are the signs an organisation needs to implement a culture change project? That's a fascinating question and one that I would say in this transformative age, I'm not entirely sure there's time for a sign or a signal to pop up uh, and be recognised. Everything's moving so quickly. There's such a, a fast pace to the evolution of organisations today. If I look, you know, every action is being, that's being taken by organisations today is shaping their culture, whether they recognise it or not. You know, even down to how their staff will claim expenses or how the telephone process works in, in an organization. They, they seem like random and innocuous examples, but really they are shaping your culture as much as, you know, the leadership behaviors of your CEO, et cetera. One of the things that, that I think really for me is crucial to recognizing about culture change is that it's evolutionary, not revolutionary always. It's uncommon that uh, a, a, an organization will have one revolutionary project or event that happens in its lifetime that it can use to make a significant shift in culture. When they do arise, it has to be maximized, but certainly uh, in my experience, you know, in all my years of working now, I'd probably say I've had one lifetime opportunity around doing something a little bit revolutionary around something that EY is doing you know, in the performance management space, but certainly projects of this magnitude are very few and far between. And so I really, I look at ways that companies should be maximizing the everyday interactions that they see going on in the business, whether it's, you know, the financial changes they're making, operational, customer, employee changes, all of these should be actively shaping their culture. It's much more of a holistic ecosystem than it used to be in the past. One of the things, though, that I do recognize is that it's very easy to rest on our laurels around culture change and think that we don't need to actively shape it each day, but we do. And if we don't take that very proactive stance on it, ultimately what starts to happen is the culture shapes itself and sometimes not in a very healthy way. Noted. Fantastic. What do you think makes a cultural change become viral, Gina? Oh. Good question. I think probably at the top of that, that list, I put the passion of the leader. You know, energy is contagious, Abby, and we, and we see it across the board. People are really encouraged and energized by seeing somebody lead with enthusiasm and, and really display that passion as a leader. I think probably a, a secondary element to it is something that I call the WISM factor. We love acronyms, don't we? And WISM is what's in it for me. So really being able to see the benefits for individual stakeholders. The other piece I think is, is that so often with culture change, we think that everybody will be motivated by the same thing. And so doing a proper stratification of stakeholders and being able to be really clear about how we want to treat each of these different stakeholders, how they will benefit, what will be the longer term sustainability within their realm, 
it, all of that really makes for a, a stronger uh, viral element. But ultimately, at the end of the day, and, and I probably sound a little bit uh, sort of crazy and standing on my soapbox around this, is we have to drive an emotional groundswell on the topic at hand. So often we see with culture change and change projects, we go in with a very compliance and procedural dialogue around it. And ultimately, at the end of the day, our people are moved not just by what they can process in the mind and the brain, but also very much about what pulls on their heartstrings. And it's making sure that it has a really good measure of tapping into the heart and not just the head. I couldn't agree more, Julian. That's a, a really great way of um, putting it all together. Could you give us an example of successful cultural change project or projects you have been involved with? That's an interesting question. It's interesting because asking about a cultural change project in some ways infers there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to the creation of a culture, which in my experience, culture change is so organic that it's really difficult to, to pinpoint a single project or activity that is the sole contributor to a culture change. If I think about the largest project I've been involved with so far in my, you know, over a decade's worth of career, that's been the force about positively impacting culture change at EY, it's probably the introduction of our new career development and performance framework called LEADS that I mentioned a, a few questions ago. It's brave, uh, it's very bold, and it moves us very far away from the traditional performance metric mindset we've had in the past. With LEAD, we're really trying to shift around 260,000 mindsets, so all of our people, to a very future-focused, feedback-driven, conversation-based, behaviorally-based approach. And it's probably the most difficult but simultaneously rewarding change project I've ever worked on. Scarily, it's by no means done. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's one of the most fascinating parts of doing culture change. We see it as a three-year journey just to get us to the baseline of where we want these new behaviors to really grow from. I guess the interesting part would be, well, what would determine whether we're on track with that? You know, what's our road to success to date? And I'd say probably there's a few things for us that, that indicate that this is starting to get some traction. We've had more feedback provided to our people in, in the nine months of, of our existence of LEAD than we saw in, in, in 12 months in our previous system. Over 1.2 million pieces of feedback and counting, they still continue and over 600,000 questions asked in the first month of, of our launch of LEAD to our first-of-a-kind-in-the-world talent chatbot, which we're very excited that we launched with Towers Watson. But our work's never done, Abby, in this space, and just like evolution, we need to keep at it. We can't take our foot off the gas. And so there's, there's a lot more that remains on the table for us to explore uh, around this culture change project. But that's probably the largest one that I've ever undertaken, and certainly one that I've probably learned the most lessons on. Those figures are astonishing, Gina. Thank you very much for that insight. What are some of the roadblocks to cultural change becoming viral, um, in your opinion, and, and how do you shift these? That's a great question. Uh, I, I, I think I probably could have made a long list of roadblocks if I really thought about it. But where we, we, where we tend to sort of try and 
focus our attention and, and make sure that it's it's uh, progressive thinking in this space at EY is around uh, an approach that we use, trying to identify where the resistance to change is coming from. And so we use a, a very simple uh, sort of three-step process for us around uh, what we call preference, tradition, or requirements. So when we're trying to uncover a block in the system, we can ask ourselves, you know, are we getting resistance because of tradition. In other words, we've, people are thinking we've always done it this way. And often for us, that's a, a very big step change, especially as an organization with a very long uh, history and legacy. We ask the question, is this just preference? So are our people stuck in terms of their change around, well, we've always done it this way. We like it. It makes it, us feel comfortable. So it's less about the organizational preference and more about the individual preference. And then the last part is, you know, does it have to be done this way? So, for example, you know, is it, are there legislative reasons something has to happen in a particular way? So we we tend to try and encounter uh, or, or counteract rather some of the, the roadblocks we see by trying to understand what's really at the root cause. And this very simple framework of tradition, preference, or requirement helps us to unpack where some of those challenges might be. And off the back of that, it gives us a direction as to how do we start shifting them. So generally, if things are popping up around tradition and preference, those are the items that we can push the hardest on. We can push more challenge into the organization to get people to start seeing the benefits of changing, et cetera. Obviously, with the requirement elements, if there are legislative or, or, or other reasons, that's not as easy to shift. So we tend to use that as a as a quick and dirty exercise for ourselves to assess where we need to focus our attention. Well noted, Gina, thank you. Leaders always have an important part to play in cultural change programs. And how do you feel that their role has been evolving? Well, I mean, I, I'd say probably the shift for leaders has probably felt simultaneously seismic and yet subtle. The, the command and control mindset of, of yesteryear simply just doesn't work anymore. And, and you know, there's, in a professional services firm like ours, that, that couldn't be more evident. You know, we have a 160-year legacy. Many of our people were, you know, involved in our business from the, the day that they graduated from university. And there's a long trajectory that many of them have had with us to become very successful partners and owners of the business. But there's much more of this shift to becoming what I call captains of their own ships. It's no longer just the role of that figurehead leader to, to really influence the experience of each employee. And that's where we see a distinct change that starts to happen, that previously there was much more of a acknowledgement that we had a very senior leader and that person could influence everything that happened. So when we're talking about 260,000 employees, in our case, you have to keep evolving the role of the leader, and you have to start making people realize that there are leaders at every level in our organization. We also see a, a massive shift in growing responsibility for the general well-being of their people. So this much more humanistic side that is coming out. And in some ways, it's really ironic because we see the evolution of technology but actually, the push of technology is requiring more and more of our leaders to be human and accessible 
and in lockstep with their employees every day. The final piece, I guess, for me that I really see evolving in the leadership space is our people are looking at their leaders 24-7, 365. They are watching. They're being watched by a much broader spectrum of employees, that not only those that are directly within their sphere of influence. And it's not just what the employees are seeing, but it's also very much what they don't see. So they don't see, you know, certain behaviors happening that they feel should be. And so there's this constant observation of leaders and role modeling of leaders that's happening. And so it's a very different type of environment than I think many of our leaders are used to and that have grown up with. And we try and help them as much as possible in adjusting to some of these new evolutionary steps in our business. Perfect. Uh, and leading on from that, how do you identify leadership behaviors that will fit the future culture? Good question, Abby. I think many of us would wish <laughs> that we had a crystal ball that we could peer into and it would give us all the answers. Certainly, I, I don't think anybody can know what the future culture will be. We can only have an aspiration to work towards. And for us, that's driven very strongly uh, at EY by our purpose of building a better working world. And so that's the constant strive, if you will. I think a lot of the leadership behaviors also need to be considered very much in light of the changing world of work, what it's asking of our leaders, what it's asking of our people. If you look at any of the literature that's coming out on the future of work, and in our case, something that's very relevant, the future of the profession, it's very evident that leadership behaviors are really what's going to be crucial to differentiate between what evolves or moves to technology and what will be done by a leader in the future. For us, again, it goes a little bit to that um, aspect that I mentioned earlier around the human element in the value chain. Our leaders are increasingly needing to grow people, to nurture their insights, to engage in fruitful dialogue, to collaborate more, to get a lot more comfortable with ambiguity, and, and to recognize uh, that that the world they grew up in is, is no longer. And that's quite an interesting transition, but one that we can only help them to be more agile about um, because we certainly don't know what the future holds for us ultimately. Excellent. How do you drive leaders to display these behaviors that are fit for the future organization rather than the current one? If I summed it up in one word, probably slowly. <laughs> um, it's a it's a constant exercise. Uh, it, it's one that needs to be reinforced from multiple directions on an ongoing basis. But ultimately, what we keep bringing our leaders back to is what's good for the business. We know ultimately they are all owners of the business as partners with us. And so we want to show them the value of changing and the value that these future behaviors will bring to them ultimately at the end of the day. You know, there's so many of our leaders are strongly driven by this need to leave a, a powerful legacy and to have an impact. And we wanted to show them that if, if they have this evolution in their behaviors, actually at the end of the day, it helps to make that legacy stronger, uh, that impact bigger. And that's often what they are focused on quite heavily. There also is very much a focus for us on you get what you measure. So for us, Shifting the goalpost on behavior also has to have a very tangible link to the future success of the organization. They have to see the way that this will come to, 
to bear fruit for them in the future. And so, again, it goes back to that growth mindset that I mentioned earlier, so that we get them much more to a place of thinking of, you know, in, with a lens of abundance, of collaboration, of sharing, rather than a lens of scarcity, consequence, and, and a lot of individualism. And that takes time. And that's why, you know, I say very tongue-in-cheek, but it's it's a slow process and, and it is, it's a long journey. And to think that there will be a quick answer to this, is, it would make us very sorely mistaken. Yeah, the quick fix is not there, absolutely. Given the pace of change in organisations today, Gina, what sort of behaviours do you think senior leaders will need over the longer term to help them adapt to a sometimes uncertain future? Wonderful question. I, I guess the interesting part for me is the only thing that we're certain about is the future is uncertain. And that's certainly something that's driving a lot of our work and thinking at EY at the moment. We've done a lot of work in this space as we continue to drive our very ambitious Vision 2020 aspirations, but we also acknowledge that the role of the leader is shifting, both overtly and covertly for us. So, you know, if I look at some of the, the sort of overt changes, things like corner offices are no longer, you know, hierarchy is dissolving, and certainly, you know, what was driving our people in the past around looking up to and aspiring to have a level of, you know, technical skill that, that was similar to or the same as their boss or manager, that, that's not the sole driver of our people anymore. So we see, we see a lot of change in that space. At EY, I say probably our focus is really on pushing our leaders to recognize that if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And so, it, 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 that's not going to help us to sustain ourselves in the future. Um, we know that we recognize that the vast changes happening in the political and economic environments around us. So if they keep doing what they've always done, the pace of change will make it irrelevant in a heartbeat. And some of them are starting to feel that themselves. So what are we focusing on? Well, I'd say probably agility in particular. So that ability to to roll with the punches, to feel comfortable not having all the answers, but to be in a, in, a, in a position of accepting that and moving with it as it happens. Having a strong change appetite is, is very high on our agenda, so trying to get people used to that notion. Storytelling is becoming very, very important for us in a very authentic and individual way. It helps us to keep the agenda moving forward. It helps to build trust within the business, uh, both with clients and with employees. We also have a very strong leadership framework, and very big and important piece of that is personal leadership. So how present our leaders are, how agile they are, how, what is the strength of their vitality in order to really stay the course and ensure that they have the energy and the enthusiasm to keep moving the dial um, because we know it, it can be draining. It's, a, it's exhausting to have to keep changing on a, on a regular basis. I'd say probably the final piece for us, Abby, certainly at EY, is a very pressing need to get a level of digital fluency into the system. Uh, it, it, it has to be a dominant focus for us. You know, two or three years ago, if you were talking to us about you know, needing to have digital fluency, we might have looked at you strangely and said, well, you know, where's that coming from? 
but that is very much the reality. It's on our doorstep at the moment, and, and that's very much a part of our continued journey to Vision 2020. And that was Gina Wilson, Europe, Middle East, India and Africa Organizational Development Leader at Ernst & Young, discussing viral cultural change and how to help senior leaders to adapt their behaviors to fit the future of the organization. For more excellent conversations from Chapman CG, subscribe to our podcast series or check us out at chapmancg.com.